0: Welcome to the Property Development Book Club podcast. Please be advised that panel members are expressing their own views and opinions, which should not be construed as advice. The audience must carry out their own research and consult an appointed professional for advice. Hello and welcome to the Property Development Book podcast. In today's discussion, we have a panel of architects, developers, development managers, planners, and agents, and we'll be discussing small sites. Now, from a development perspective, small sites can often appear easy to deal with or a good sort of first move from buy to let investment into your first development project. But in reality, small sites can be rather difficult to unlock and make work. So that's what we're going to be discussing today. We'll begin with introductions. My name is Faith Lochkin, I'm a Development Manager and Charter Surveyor, and I'll move over to my right.
1: My name is Justin Reid, I wear two hats, one as a Planning Consultant and the other one as a Senior
2: Planning Officer in Local Authority. Hi, Robert Bice, child Planning, Development Surveyor, specialising in acquisition.
3: Lorraine Thomas. I'm a property mentor, developer, and a landlord with a social purpose. I'm more purpose than
4: I am property.
5: Hi, my name is Nathan King, and I'm a commercial and development agent.
4: Hi there, my name is Hugh McEwen, and I'm an architect, and we specialize in small sites.
0: Cool. So I'm going to start with a question for everyone, um, because I think different people have a different understanding of what a small site is. So I'll start on my left this time and ask Mm. What is your definition of a small development
4: site? So from our kind of technical understanding of things, we uh, consider a small site as anything that's smaller in site area than two and a half thousand square meters um, and can be between one and forty units. so small sites aren't necessarily that small and um, that's kind of one of the I think kind of common misconceptions as well um, but then there's a lot of broader you know, topics around that that we'll cover today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nathan? I would say, um, as an agent,
5: we look at it in a couple ways. The first way is price, so anything under £2 million we'll consider as a small site, Um, and then geographically it will change, and let's say it's in London, then anything that's nine units or less we'll consider as a small site, but when you go to the outside of uh, London we'll consider anything that's below the affordable threshold as a small site.
3: And Lorraine, as a, as a developer, yeah. So just leading on from Nathan, I think um, nine units, anything that's nine units, is considered as a small site, because above nine units, then it goes into a whole new planning realm. Um, and so for nine units, it's only sort of half the, the planning department that would look at it. Anything above that would be considered, you know, go to full. Planning um, in a in a council. Justin, would you agree?
1: Yes. Yeah, I agree. Um, and there's different types of um, small sites. So you've got your brownfield sites, greenfield sites. Within the brownfield category, it could be rooftop development. It could be a church. It could be a petrol station. It could be um, an infill site, or even a backland development. So there's various types of um,
2: small sites. Um, yeah. yeah. What do you think? my view a small site could be something as small as an individual flat or dwelling so something if you're purchasing it developing it so on upwards and i would say agree logistically nine to ten units in my view would be small for what i consider
0: good um, and so what are some of the hurdles um, when looking for and finding sort of small sites um, I'm going to, Rob, I'll stick with you on this. What what kind of hurdles do you think people face in finding small sites that are suitable for development?
2: Uh, first one is supply. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, there's not enough going about. And I think 2022 at the minute, the market is extremely competitive. And I think the lack of supply is pushing the price up. Sales rates are buoyant. So that is the first hurdle, in my view, supply. Mm.
0: Lorraine, you're actively in the market developing looking for sites what hurdles are you finding
3: in finding the, kind of the next right site that, that fits your business model right so first of all it's location 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 um, and it depends on whether you're going to manage that site yourself or whether you're going to allow all, all of your professionals to do it for you and you just travel in and out and uh, oversee the second thing is is cost really versus you know the cost of the land versus building it out and whether that's actually viable. Um, yeah, I think they're the most difficult things. And, and when you do find a site, mm. often um, you'll find that somebody else has been looking at it before mm. and they may have tried to get planning on it and that's the reason it's still there.
5: <laughs>
0: so, you know, you are
3: you going after it, you could be in for the long haul. Yeah. yeah. Nathan, you
0: laughed there. Yeah, <laughs> You've got I've,
5: experience with that? I've got a lot of experience with it. Uh, what I would say... From a developer's perspective, they might say, or a lot of you have said, that it's hard to find sites. We we don't necessarily struggle to find sites, that's not the issue. And I think from a, develop, a bit of advice to developers, be a little bit more creative. Like, I've done everything you can think of in terms of trying to acquire a site. So I will knock on someone's door and say, hey, I'm from um, City and Counties Commercial, Um, Would you be interested in selling and I don't think a lot of developers are open to doing such things They're more sitting at a desk and hoping something will come to them But sometimes you just have to go out and make something happen and then the main issue in London Outside of London it's slightly different but in London everything feels like it's been approached and then once it's been approached The vendor has a a figure in their head that you cannot get out Mm. And then you're in a situation where they want too much money for something that's not that great, mm. um, and then you can't do a deal because of the price difference that you have.
0: I challenge you on that. I think sometimes the vendor has a price in the head because the agents put the price in their head.
5: But it's not me. we'll all come to buy a bit later. It's definitely not me, <laughs> um, someone else.
0: Justin, from a planning perspective, yeah. what kind of hurdles are you seeing um, people finding uh, when they're looking at small sites? Yeah,
1: so typically with small sites, people, developers, tend to want to maximize the potential of the site. so It's, I guess, ensuring that there's enough internal floor space, ensuring that you've got um, a garden space, um, ensuring that there's sufficient light and outlook within the properties. However, you've got to get the right balance to make sure that... So, for example, if you need light and outlook within properties, you will need to provide more windows. however you would have to make sure that the windows are well positioned so there's no overlooking so it's kind of just overcoming all of those different hurdles really
0: Mm. so flipping over to Hugh so Mm. Hugh you're our resident architect on the panel today from a design perspective how can developers or and working with their architects kind of find those solutions to really unlock those small sites, making sure that they are meeting the planning criteria. I think that's
4: the thing, it's really kind of understanding those criteria and those rules that you're going to have to apply to that site and kind of, you know, taking those on board early doors so that that's embedded in the scheme. Mm. So there's lots of kind of technical requirements, as as Justin's touched on. You know, we have these kind of little mantras like bins and bikes and fire and flood, so that you make sure that you you know the (coughs) possibilities of the site kind of right from day one. But then it's also taking that all the way through and really thinking about the viability of delivering these sites. You know, often they're really tricky, you know, to get services to because they mm. might be particularly backland sites. And it's, it's understanding those costs have got to be kind of considered right up front uh, when, you're, when you're looking at something. Mm. And
3: do you, sorry, yes? Yeah, I just wanted to say because, um, you know, as a, as a small developer, we rely really, really heavily on the architect mm. and guiding us. How many units can we get out of this? And I remember when we did our first development, um, the architect said, you can get six on that uh, plot of land. And we went, well, the mayor's saying, <laughs> build up, so let's go for nine. And obviously we went to pre-planning and they loved it. They, they did tell us to move a few things around. But ultimately, you know, when you're guiding your clients, are you conservative or are you sort of to, to manage expectation? Mm-hmm. Or are you a little bit bullish, as Doris and I were, and we went, no, we want to go all out. Mm-hmm. And then you
4: pull us back. I, I think now there's a lot more support for, like you say, being <coughs> bullish because, you know, the London plan has got rid of um, density matrices and is now going for what they're calling a design-led uh, approach yeah. to density, right. which is which is incredible because I think it's really forward-looking. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what, you know, that's, that's what we're finding is that actually there's a lot more support Coming from government at various levels for delivery of these sites because they know that they're in sustainable locations and they're often addressing blighted sites. You know, we're seeing sites that are uh, you know have histories of antisocial behaviour or are just you know a uh, uh, rundown, and those are being brought back into use to solve the housing crisis. So you know, I think there's definitely opportunities to push ahead with these. I think
2: having due diligence set up at the early stage, as you said, is key to pricing everything it's it will put it all together and then profit at the end that's mm. where you get to it mm.
0: so that's kind of touched a little bit on viability yeah. right from mm. from a financial perspective um, so what what pitfalls do you think are you seeing Rob in, in sort of the development space when, when developers are looking at a small site
2: from a developer's perspective yeah they there may be too much optimism in the land value, Mm. so it it could be incorrect inputs, planning assumptions might over-egg it. Uh, Bill costs, they might make mistakes in terms of the indices, incorrect advice from a QS. um, And as well, I think historically people were overpaying for a site to mitigate contributions and so on, but now it's more robust and it is on the true value of the site. Mm. Nathan, oh, yeah, I was, gonna, I, was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you because
0: obviously you're, you're advising some, 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 developers when, when they're putting in offers. So what, yeah, I would
5: say so. It sounds like from the conversation we're focusing on sites that don't have planning at the moment, and sites that don't have planning. The people that are getting those sites are the ones that are more bullish. Um, so they are happy to buy it unconditionally rather than subject to planning permission, um, because vendors don't want to wait eighteen months to twelve months anymore. Um, they're they're happy to exchange and speculate and take more risk but with consented sites the people that are getting those sites are the ones that can build the cheapest and they're more ambitious with their build and typically they have the cash to buy it so I had a situation recently where someone was buying a consented site and they couldn't get the funding for it Even though they were confident, they had in-house QSs that were confident that they could build it. However, the financer said, you won't build it for that amount. However, someone else came across and said, yep, I'll buy it. I've got the cash, don't need financing. So they just relied on their own knowledge and then they bought the site. Mm -hmm. So it just depends on your infrastructure, really.
0: Lorraine, you um, you bought yours unconditional, didn't you?
3: <laughs> I am sitting here, like, going, back, you know, trying to hold it down because um, I remember uh, our agent said to us, um, oh, you don't need to worry about this site because we're looking at seasoned developers and we thought, well, we're not seasoned developers, we're just little people who have spotted some garages and mm. we think that we can build there. And the agent was so negative to us going. I, I don't know whether it's because there was a there was a bit of a race, and there was a number of people who he knew he could sell it to. Mm. But certainly he wanted to rule us out. Um, and we did the bullish thing and went in there and went. He, the offers were at four fifty, and we just went straight in at four eighty or four eighty unconditional. I didn't even know what that meant. Mm. And um, <laughs> and 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 we got it right. So. I just think that sometimes, it's a little bit, it, it, it's crazy really because you don't know whether the agent is pulling the wool over your eyes <laughs> um, or... Here comes the agent attorney. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, well that's uh, why we're uh, sat together. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, you know, because you, you just, you don't know, because they were saying 450 and we just went in with 480, but, but mm. actually, could we have got it for 450? You know, unconditional, uh, I don't know.
5: From my experience, yeah. the people that go, 480, I'll do it right now, they win. If you're in a position where there's people fighting for it, what an agent will do is, a good agent will play psychological games with you to an extent where they'll be like, if you want it, you need to do something different, right? And if everyone, if you've got three people offering the same amount, someone has to go the extra mile. And it's not their, um, if they're saying, look, you're not seasoned, you, you need to, do something different, then they they did the right thing and you ended up paying well, more than everyone else and they got their fee and they yeah, walked away. Yeah, because
3: everybody else was conditional,
5: right, mm.
3: so we just went
0: unconditional. So Lorraine, yeah. you, you, you put that offer in unconditional, but from a viability perspective, yeah. what what metrics were you looking for for it to, to work for you, because I'm, I'm sure you must have done the
3: numbers Yeah, so um, we knew that we could go down as low as six units and it still worked for us.
1: This is the Property Development Book Club. If you're enjoying what you see, make sure you like, share and subscribe.
6: I'm Adeweli Ademalake, founder at A Lake, which specialises in property development and development management. We are sponsoring the first season of the Property Development Book Club podcast, which will be out on all platforms soon.
3: What we didn't know, was that there would be a whole load of series of other costs that would come into play before we even, you know, so once you secured it, going into the ground, doing that ground soil survey, you know, we didn't know that, that those costs were part of the viability of it. And so for us, um, we, we were dubious that we got the planning. But then we had to go, and, and we should have done it before, somebody should have advised us, look at the site, because it costs us an extra 100K. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah.
4: yeah. I Hello. I think that's why it's really valuable having that team you know, looking at something yes. early doors, because yeah. you know, they're bringing that experience to bear on, on these sites, because like you say, there are those things which can just derail schemes. Yeah. So, totally. But the issue that someone
5: like yourself will have is you're rushing, and you have to have an architect look at it, your site surveyor look at it, yeah. all at the same time, within a few days, and they have to be all available at the same time. And if they're not available, then the deal might not happen because someone else will just buy it. Yeah. That's yeah. the issue. I'm yeah. Yeah.
0: So Lorraine, you spoke about um, you knew that the, the mayor was saying you know build up and you yeah. were able to you know push your architect to build to build the scheme up yeah um i was just going to go over to justin here from a from yeah. a planning policy perspective yeah. um you know are there is there policy in place which yeah. is allowing you know more people coming to the market now to unlock some of these small sites yeah
1: yeah so recently well, in 2021 um the london there's been a new london plan basically hey um policy H2, which acknowledges the importance of um, small sites, acknowledges the contribution it makes to meeting the housing delivery targets. Um, and it that policy encourages different councils to have their own design codes um, in relation to small sites. And I think that is key, that, that's a key point in, in relation to... So a council's policy position with regards to their design is key to maximising the potential of a site um, some councils take a traditional um, and sympathetic approach, where they want any proposed development to be in keeping with, with what's surrounding. Whereas other councils might be a bit more um, innovative and encourage contemporary development. And I think that is kind of key to sort of maximising the potential of a site. So a good example is an infill site. If if you've got a row of houses which are four and a half metres wide, and you've got an infill site which is three and a half metres wide. You can't design it in a way, um, where it's going to meet the, it's going to fit in with the street essentially. So it might have to have vertical emphasis. Um, and I think yeah, it's, as I say, it's the council's design approach which is key to
0: maximising the potential. site. and I guess from a consultant perspective, you yeah. having an understanding of that policy, understanding what the sort of the members and the council, the, the committee that are making these decisions yes. wants to see yeah. and then you advise your client on how much they can kind of push yes. to get in those sites. And, and I guess
1: there's different things in play there as well because you've got the council's policies um, which might state one thing and then you've got different, so for example if you if you get a lot of interest in the site, a site might go to planning committee so you've got to understand what the members of the planning committee look for as well so yeah it's, it's, it's guess, I guess it's knowing what Knowing what happens behind the scenes is very important mm-hmm. um, in terms of how to position and your um, your proposal.
3: Yeah, can I do, yeah, that's really interesting to know because um we've just <coughs> been turned down by Croydon oh. right. <laughs> uh, on um, uh, trying to develop um, a, a garage, yeah. and it's it's an infill to a row of you know the, the street scene is all sort of houses and then there's this big space that's people are just dumping stuff there, mm, yeah. and wouldn't it be better Especially when um, we're looking for more housing, for that to be developed into two flats where people could live, and especially in my world, just people have a roof over their head. Mm-hmm. Rather than then saying no, it's not big enough, or it's not going to fit the street scene. Well, what we're going to do then? Just leave it as a garage for people to dump? Because that doesn't fit the street scene either. Mm-hmm. And how do you argue this with? You know, I, I literally wanted to go over there and go. It was a Zoom call when we went but I wanted to leap out of the screen and go, can you not see that it's a it's gonna be disastrous if you leave it for rats and rubbish and whereas I'm saying I want to build this out. Mm-hmm. How do you get that through to planning committees?
0: I I I would say that I have the same issue with we won't go into the politics of it, no. but often it is politics, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, when it comes to that committee. So I've I've been in committees where they've spent two hours arguing on a bin store, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. the, the location of mm-hmm. it. And you're like, we're trying to produce housing See? here. There's a housing crisis, you know. Yeah. Be logical. But often, you know, when you're dealing with individuals, sometimes they don't always have the the community's best mm-hmm. interest at heart. Sometimes it is yeah. looking at things from a from a political perspective. Um. So just. Uh, I,
4: I think on that topic mm-hmm. you know I think that's where um, you know officers are really can be really supportive of schemes and what we're seeing is a lot more of um, a policy kind of coming down through local authorities to support this type of delivery because you know even at national level you know the, the MPPF is covering you know, intensification of sites. That's then coming down through the London plan, as Justin says, and then it's going into local authorities' own plans. So we've got people like Croydon, Lewisham, uh, and, and Tower Hamlets who now have specific small sites support- supportive policies, and that can really empower um, case officers to then be much more supportive of these schemes. Is that recent? How recent is that? Because. So, yeah Yeah, that could be really
3: impactful on us going back and arguing our case really yeah
4: yeah croydon's been around for a couple of years lewisham was last year right Um, but yeah they're really they're really you know powerful tools um, because they kind of put they they sort of um make it political but in a kind of positive way because Mm. you know they give the political impetus to actually deliver new housing
0: Mm. um and so this might be a little bit of a Grenade questioners, I don't know what he likes to call it. Um, just to wrap up, final question: Do we think small sites make less money than larger sites? I'm going to start with Nathan.
5: <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> oh God! <laughs> um,
0: I mean it's it's how you want to take it, really. Like it, from I guess like, if we're talking profit, you mm. know, if we're looking at a you know a development appraisal, you know, GDB less costs, less uh, um, profit equals land value or whatever. Um, from a profit perspective what, what what do you think small or large sites well it depends
5: it depends on the site I've seen so many people lose money on sites I've seen people make money on sites um, I think it depends on what you're buying so if you're buying unconditionally then a lot of developers want the option to sell it with planning once they have um, got the planning permission mm. and then that's the uplift, and then plus, if they build it out, they'll make another profit. So with the smaller sites, I've seen a lot of people make larger margins from that. So you might buy a site for 100K, get planning permission, sell it for 300K with planning permission, or build it out and make an extra 100K on top of that. So if you started off with an investment of 100K plus costs at 150, for example, and then you end up building it, And you end up um, selling it on you might end up doubling your money which may not happen
2: with a larger site Mm, Um, so anticipated profit I think when you're at the early stages of that position you get very excited and go that's gonna make me 26% and as Lorraine said ground investigations all these things come through and then the true profit at the end could be much lower so I think In theory, a small site could be more profitable, but you've got to get your due diligence correct Mm. at the forefront. Otherwise, there's going to be mistakes, and you're going to lose money. Bigger sites, I think, have less of a risk, but you need to put more money into it, Mm. so it's a balance.
0: Yeah, Justin?
2: Yeah, I think given the,
1: I guess, constraints of small sites, um, there's probably less competition um, for them. A lot of people try and get planning permission for them, and they might fail and kind of step away from it from it and don't want that challenge. So I guess with the more complex small sites, there's if you know how to get the planning permissions and kind of work your way around the numbers, then there's scope um, to get more profit
0: on, on these small sites. Mm, from planning games like, perspective. Yeah.
5: I just worked something out. <laughs> from from my experience, a lot of people are in the market. There's a mass market for the smaller sites. The larger sites you you get priced out if you're a developer so like someone like yourself if you're trying to buy a large site a 50 unit scheme a housing association a taylor wimpy or a barrett homes they will be a little bit more competitive than you but the smaller sites it's a mass market so once you have that planning permission it's a free-for-all and then also selling that unit is a lot you can sell it a lot quicker because it's only one or two or nine yeah, yeah. units And therefore you can be in and out of the skin quicker. And if you have finance costs and you build it, then there's less holding costs. Mm. So you can be in and out of them a lot quicker because you're dealing with the mass market rather than loads of no mm.
3: lorraine would you agree yeah yeah i would i would agree um but you know it swings and roundabouts a little bit isn't it because once you've built it out what what do we say about profit and cost and time have you built your own time into that the amount of time that you spend on a site also once you've built it out that then enters a whole new realm of you know there's a year where. The, uh, the, the new owners could say, well, my tap doesn't work. The flooring's gone, you know, the flooring's crap. This is not working. That's not working. So really, I guess on a smaller site, there's less units for that to happen. Mm. So then your profit would be higher. Mm. On a larger site, you could have 200 people all complaining about their taps mm. or whatever it is. Mm. So I think... Um, Yes, more profit in a smaller site, but um, you've got to take into account your own costs and that of all the other professional costs as well, which will be the same as on a big site. Mm. So, yeah, it's a little bit of a swings and roundabouts, I think. I don't know whether that answers the question. No, there. it, it <laughs> kind of does. And I think from but my perspective as a development manager, I manage quite
0: a large um, uh, uh, scheme 1500 units and we on that kind of site you're you'd expect because it's larger you're going to get you know more profit but mm-hmm. really once you're getting into those realms you're now dealing with section 106 contributions and cost like all these mm-hmm. other costs which are smaller mm-hmm. site you might not have to consider you know putting in new infrastructure all of that so at some point it then gets to you know sometimes the profit margins then really do get
3: low down yeah um and, and yeah uh, but i also think it's the 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 cost at which you sell the units out at. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if the GDV, if you can lift that, then that can sort of almost mitigate all those additional costs that you're still paying the same costs as a bigger development with the same professionals. Yeah. So, yeah. You.
4: Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've got much more to add, but <laughs> I, think, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, on large sites, the margins are just much tighter, but on small sites, while they are riskier, if they're done well, they have the opportunity to pay back dividends.
0: Thank you Hugh so much for that. Unfortunately that's all we have time for today. It's been a really interesting discussion hearing from architects, planners, developers, development managers um, and understanding their views on small sites and how to make it work. We hope you've enjoyed watching or listening. I've been Faith Lochkin. this has been the Property Development Book Podcast and we look forward to seeing you again soon.
6: Club was started in 2020 as a result of the COVID pandemic and what we did is we came together and curated various conversations on Clubhouse. That Clubhouse relationship transcended into a WhatsApp group and that WhatsApp group transcended into face-to-face meetups with all of the professionals listed by Hannah just now and that relationship is now morphed into a podcast So who knows where the Property Development Book Club is gonna go, but we believe that it's important to transcend digital relationships, to physical relationships, to lifelong friendships. Stay professional, property development book, like, share and subscribe.